Waiting. Are you good at waiting? What makes a, a good waiter? Whether you're a patient waiter, which I think that is a good waiter, has definitely been put to the test this year. Waiting for more toilet paper to appear in the supermarket early on. Waiting for the easing of COVID-19 restrictions. Waiting for the results of your COVID-19 test if you had to have one. Waiting to be allowed to sit again in your favourite coffee shop. Waiting to be allowed to sing at church. We're still waiting. Waiting to cross the Queensland border. Waiting to resume international air travel. Waiting, let's face it, a lot of us are just waiting for the year to end with a hope of something different on 1 January. Lamentations 4 and 5 raises this idea of waiting because the Israelites are waiting for justice and they're waiting for restoration. If you haven't been with us the last two Sundays, you've missed discovering this very sad Old Testament book. It describes the great suffering and anguish of God's people after the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem for 18 months, then destroyed its major buildings and occupied the rest after breaching the walls. People were killed, people died of starvation in the siege or were taken into exile 1,000 miles away along with their king. The suffering was terrible We're not going to look in detail today in chapter 4, but I want to sample it for you. Here are some distasteful morsels from the description of the siege. What about verse 9 of chapter 4? Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. Better a quick death. And maybe the most shocking verse in the whole of Lamentations is chapter 4, verse 10. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. I, I imagine the children had died already from the hunger. Why did it happen? Well, it was God's judgment on the sin of Israel. After years of Israel rejecting God's will, that they look after the most vulnerable in their society, and God's will that they worship him as the one and only God, not turn to other gods and their idols. After years of Israel doing, turning their back on God and doing those things, God finally withdrew his protection and blessing from Israel. It would feel like a hopeless situation. All is lost, apparently, but there are little glimmers of hope at the ends of chapters 4 and 5. And the first is for justice. So my first heading today is justice and having confidence in God for justice. Visitors to the old concentration camp at Auschwitz-Birkenau in Poland report that plaques have been erected on the rubble of one of the crematoriums. The crematoriums, of course, are where the bodies of those gassed by the Nazis were burnt to ashes. Though in different languages, each plaque essentially says the same thing. Forever, let this place be a cry of despair, a warning to humanity. It's a reminder of a dark 
profoundly evil period in history, in particular toward Jewish people and other unacceptable to the Nazis like gypsies. As well as despair, it also inspires a strong desire for justice against the perpetrators of such evil. And so it should. Through chapters 1 to 3 of Lamentation, we've seen appeals to God for justice, for God to judge the enemies of Israel. And so if you are looking in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 64, just the very end of the chapter 3, pay them back what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. And so you get to the end of chapter 4 and there's this surprising confidence from the poet that justice will come to their treacherous neighbour, Edom. Edom was, if you think of Israel there, Edom's sort of here on the, on the southeast uh, border of Israel. This is in verse 21 of chapter 4. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You'll be drunk and stripped naked. It's sort of sarcastic, rejoice and be glad. He's going to punish you. Of course, the one who's rejoicing and being glad is his daughter Israel, daughter Jerusalem. We know from another Old Testament writer, uh, the prophet Obadiah, exactly what Edom did, how they were, became Israel's enemies. And what they did was to take advantage of Jerusalem's vulnerability following the Jerusalem siege and like a vulture feeding off the carcass that the lion has brought down, they came, they went through the broken down gates, they, they joined in the looting of the treasures and the wealth of the people of Jerusalem. They also uh, joined in waiting at the crossroads and cutting down the fugitives of Israel as they tried to flee the Babylonians. And maybe worst of all, they just stood aside and laughed and gloated over the misfortune of Israel. Does it trouble you, this talk of justice and God taking vengeance on the enemies? If it does, I reckon it's because in our easy life we aren't victims too often. Because all victims want justice. We all want to live in a world where perpetrators don't ultimately get away with it. You saw the response of the sister of the lady uh, who died following a fight with her cousin over a Mercedes. Uh, When that lady was found not guilty on Friday, the anger from the the, uh, sister of the lady who died and attacking the judge, how can you sleep at night? Because she felt justice hadn't been done. Now, as Christians, we know that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that there is a judgment coming for all. In fact, God has set a day when he'll judge the world by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the appointed judge. Human governments and legal systems are supposed to ensure justice, but we know they won't always, whether because of human failing, because of neglect or corruption in the legal process, as happens in too many countries. So what are we to do? Well, it's that word again, 
wait, be patient, and be patient to the end if you have to, to see justice. In Revelation chapter 6, we get a picture of the end, and there's a vision in chapter 6 where there's people who've been martyred for their faith by corrupt, ungodly governments, and they're crying out to God, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, till you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? You know, how long till we get justice? And what's the answer that is given? Wait. Let me read it for you. Each of them were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. In other words, it's another way of saying wait till the gospel's been sufficiently preached in the world. Wait till that's happened when God will be ready to send uh, his son who will be judge. Wait till then. And as you wait till then, of course, there'll be others, Christians included, who will die. That's what happens whatever our broken world continues. And it's hard to wait and watch brothers and sisters persecuted. It's hard to wait and be mocked for one's faith. So that's why we pray. That's why we prayed last Sunday for brothers and sisters' faith who are experiencing persecution. That's why we pray for each other to patiently wait through our experiences of suffering. Some of the prayers Claire led us in then for people who are particularly unwell at this time. It's ultimately a prayer, yes, for healing, but also for faith and strengthening as they endure their suffering. And all this is why we pray for the return of Jesus, the just judge. We can have confidence that there will be justice, and that is wonderful. Well, waiting for justice is hard. Waiting for restoration is also hard, which is my second point. But for us, wait for restoration with confidence. Lamentations 5 is written as a big prayer to God. Chapter 5 is pleading with God to see the sorry state of Israel, of Jerusalem, and to restore them back to what it was like before everything was taken away. But the problem is, as you read the chapter, is they're not confident, they're not completely confident that God will do this. There is some confidence. Did you catch it right at the end of chapter 4 in that plea for justice on Eden? It was at the beginning of verse 22, the last verse of 4. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. So the poet's confident that the judgment, the punishment on Jerusalem is in fact finished. The destruction of Jerusalem and all that went with it for the people, the city, the temple and the king, that the poet sees is the complete judgment of God on on his people's sin. It's over. It's finished. Well, not quite as the second line there so it shows the exile has just begun, but that's not going to last forever either. He'll not prolong your exile, which suggests that it'll come to an end eventually. God's timing's not ours. It did take 70 years, which, you know, two generations, the exile did end and people did return. 
but it's hard to wait, like the children in the back of the car. When will we get there comes the cry. And so Lamentations 5 is one big prayer to the Lord, pleading for restoration sooner rather than later. The prayer seems to be from all the surviving people in the land after the destruction of Jerusalem. It it describes the the struggle to survive amongst the ongoing harassment of occupying forces. So like people in the world today where there's war in their country and, and they get invaded, it's hard to live in occupation. So just scanning through the beginning of chapter 5, their homes have been taken over by foreigners, verse 2. They have to actually buy their water and wood now, verse 4. They're they're ruled over by low-level members of the occupying army. They call them slaves, verse 8. They suffer from hunger, verse 10. Their women are raped, verse 11. Their leaders mistreated and tortured, verse 12. It, It goes on. Life is so hard. Every day is a struggle, Verse 17, so because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim for Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. It's really, really hard. And to top it off, the once splendid mountain with the glorious temple on it is now just a heap of rubble inhabited only by wild animals. They admit that all this has happened because they and their ancestors sinned. But after having experienced great punishment and continuing to feel the, the aftermath in the, in, in, in the pain and struggle, they're pleading with God, verse 1 of chapter 5, remember, Lord, what's happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. And by remember, they don't think God has forgotten. It's an Old Testament phrase that means, look, look at our plight and take action. And what do, what do they hope the Lord is going to do when he looks and takes action? Well, you saw a little hint to it last week. You remember last week in chapter 3, right in the middle of the chapter, in the midst of the suffering, they remembered that God is loving, compassionate, faithful, good to those who hope in him. No one's cast off by the Lord Forever. So verse 24 of chapter 3, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I'll wait for him. There's that word again, wait, but it's hard to wait. So at the end of the chapter 5, the poet prays this hurry up God prayer. Uh, look at verse 19 though, because first he reminds himself who he's praying to, that God certainly has the capacity to restore them. Verse 19, you Lord reign forever, your throne endures from generation to to generation. Here the, do you see what the poet does? He, he catapults us from the lowest point of Israel's humiliation, the destruction of the temple, the, the rubble. He catapults us to the highest place in the universe. Verse 19, the enthrone, enduring throne of God, this powerful, majestic, untouchable God. He can restore them. It's worth praying this prayer. He can do it. But does he have the will that the Lord reigns over all peoples, provides a foundation for hope for the poet and the people, but the poet can't summon hope's certainty? God is still on his throne, but will he remember his own? Right now, they're feeling forgotten, forsaken. So the poet has this one last emotional appeal there in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. 
renew our days as of old. Notice that it isn't firstly that the enemies be driven away or the city be rebuilt, even for an end to their suffering. No, first things first, and that is that God will take the initiative to restore his people to relationship with him. Back in Deuteronomy 30, centuries earlier, God actually promised that one day when they were, because of their sins, sent into exile, one day he promised that if they'd return to him with all their heart, he'd restore their fortunes, bring them back from the exile and make them prosperous. So there's grounds for confidence here. You know, God's made that promise. It's grounds that he will restore us to yourself, Lord, verse 21, yet... After all they suffered, the poet doesn't have that confidence as the very last verse. This is where the whole book ends. Bit up in the air. I'll take it from 21 again. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. The poet knows, he said it in chapter 3, that the Lord brings grief, but he'll show compassion so great as his unfailing love. He knows that, but he's feeling uncertain. He's not completely sure because I guess his suffering is just so hard. In the midst of suffering, it's easy to doubt what you know to be true, as we thought about last week. It's really hard to wait for restoration. It's really hard to rely on ancient promises to your ancestors when everything around you is saying, that's it, God's gone, he's left the building. It'd be easy to fear that God wasn't going to restore them. You you can understand that, can't you? You can understand. You know, in um, synagogues, Uh, for centuries since Lamentations. They read Lamentations, but do you know what they always do? They switch, they add, repeat verse 21. So after verse 22 with its great uncertainty and not sure, they throw in verse 21 again and it sort of feels like it ends better, just pleading to God and and sort of expressing that hope. But the, the, the poet let it end there with that, uncertainty because that's how he was feeling let me ask you the things you're waiting for the things you're looking to for God the things you need your restoration are you confident do you have a confidence that God can give you those things or are you a, a little bit like the poet in Lamentations not not really sure I want to say to you that because we live this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a greater certainty that God will restore us. We have a perfect certainty that God will restore us. That when we suffer due to living in a broken world with broken bodies and flawed institutions, God is not angry at us, as we've been seeing in Lamentations. Uh, God is not forsaking us. In fact, we can be certain that God will restore and renew us. And how how can we have that certainty? Well, first we've seen we've been adopted into his family through faith in Jesus Christ, who's taken the punishment for our sins from us. And so, as you saw in our first reading, I want to go back, if you're looking in your Bibles, go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's where we're going to end today. 
I want to show you what the Apostle Peter could write to people suffering in the first century. It was 1 Peter chapter 5, it's verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So depend on the Lord. And then here, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. They weren't sure in, in Jerusalem in Lamentations. In their suffering, they struggled to remember God's compassion and care and no wonder. But we're being reminded here, he cares for you. Notice the certainty with which Peter expresses it. He's certain of it. He's certain of it. If you just read through the whole of 1 Peter, you just keep being reminded of God's favour for us in Jesus. I'll give you some choice words from chapter 1, verse 19. You've been saved from sin with the precious blood of Christ. It cost God so much to save you. He really must care for you. So we can bring, that means, all our anxieties to God. Verse 7 again. We should bring all our anxieties to God. Do you you make a daily habit of that? Notice the verse. There isn't a quota system. You aren't limited to one garbage full or two free bulky good collections a year. He wants it all. And Peter's advice is particularly directed here to those who are suffering persecution because of their faith. But I think... His words apply to all our suffering, mistreatment by others, our health suffering, our economic and employment suffering, whatever. All our anxieties. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This year, one of the areas I've been trying to grow in is how I react in a stressful situation. I've been trying to develop, I think I've shared this before, an automatic prayer reflex Rather than uh, by a stressful thing, a criticism or something, um, sending me into an internal dialogue of grumbling or negative self-taught, my first response I desire would be that I stay calm and begin to pray. Uh, Tell God what it is and tell God how I'm feeling and ask God for help, taking my anxieties, my concerns, my uncertainties to the Lord. And so it's been a real encouragement to look at 1 Peter 5 this week and have verse 7 jump out at me in a way that it never has before. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I'm glad to report that I have been making progress on my goal, but this verse is such an encouragement to keep at it, isn't it? Here in 1 Peter 5 is a rock solid promise that God cares for us and a rock-solid promise that he will restore us. It isn't guaranteeing maybe that you'll have back all you've lost, but it's promising you'll be restored, strengthened and made firm in your relationship with God. Just what they were asking for in Lamentations, what he was pleading for. Just have a look at the promise, verse 10 of 1 Peter 5. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. He will restore you after you've suffered, as you throw all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. I've read, it, I've read that at Oswich, Some Polish Catholics upset some Jewish groups by placing crosses nearby. 
they were intended by the Christians as a sign that Christ too shared the pain of the thousands of Jews and others who were executed. Well, having read in Lamentations about the 580 BC experience of great Jewish suffering, we as readers on the, the resurrection side of the cross of Jesus can be thankful too because we have Jesus who has died, who has risen again, we have reason then to wait confidently, knowing he cares about our pain too. In Jesus, we have grounds for confidence in God. We know that the Lord is loving us as he demonstrated in giving us our Saviour Christ, and we know him to be profoundly capable as demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead. So we wait, enduring the challenges of life as well as enjoying its blessings. And as we wait, we humbly depend on God. When we feel impatient, we wait by casting all our anxiety on him because he cares for us and will restore us, if not immediately, then definitely when he raises us to eternal life with him and his son.